0: Ecclesiastes, we continue this week into chapter five where we'll be looking at verses one through seven. The title this morning is Reverent Devotion versus the Sacrifice of Fools. That's shocking language. And I almost purposely chose a different title to avoid the shocking language, but then I remembered my first sermon in Ecclesiastes where I told us that Solomon will purposefully use shocking language to rattle us and get us to, to look at something that we may pass over quickly. Reverent devotion versus the sacrifice of fools. I what I almost went with is warning against superficial religion. That's not a shocking. The vanity of superficial worship, not, not as shocking. I almost went with uh, only fools rush in. <laughs> but then I didn't want you imagining me in a white jumpsuit with sequins. <laughs> but Elvis did say, wise men say only fools rush in. Solomon is a wise man and that is exactly what he is saying here in this text. So let's give our reverent attention to God's word this morning. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart Be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us this morning to be listeners. To be formed and shaped by your awesomeness. That you are a consuming fire And that though you have come near to us in Jesus Christ and drawn us into the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are not our buddy. And so give us the confidence that comes from being a member of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and the reverence to come before you to listen and to receive, and to strive to obey what you have to say. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Solomon has been observing life. He has been observing life as one who, he says, has uh, has done all of these different experiences where he has looked for meaning and purpose in the world that exists under the sun. He has looked at relationships. He has has looked at money. He has looked at physical intimacy. He has looked at food. He has looked at material blessing. He he even uh, talked about trying to recreate a a garden, uh, uh, a paradise for himself. And what he has found is vapor. He has found cotton candy. It is sweet for a moment and then it dissolves and disappears. The last couple of weeks we looked at this idea that he talks about that as he is looking and observing world under the sun, what he has found is because of the twisted nature of God's image in us, where we have been created in his image, we have have had eternity put into our hearts, but because of sin and the way that we twist that, the result is that we are restless. The result is that history has come to be marked by competition instead of what God originally designed, which was community. What he has said is this, the tendency that you and I have, is to use people. We tend to see people as opportunities for us to get ahead, to get something that we think we're lacking. There is oppression. Oppression. Why, why is there oppression? Well, because we're not satisfied with what God has given us, and so we take what we think we are owed. And so people are resources for us. There is envy in this world. Why? Well, because we're not satisfied with what God has given us, and so we want what others have, and so we use them to get their stuff. We use people. It leads to oppression. It leads to envy. It leads to a fragmented society where individuals find themselves alone. And what does that being alone encourage within the person who is by himself or herself? To use the people around them to get what they don't have. And there is this cycle of of oppression and envy that is the result of a fragmented society and which leads to a further fragmented society. And so what Solomon promoted last week to us in this phrase, two is better than one and three is better than that, is that for us to live the wise or the good life under the sun, it is going to come from us living for we instead of me. If I live for myself, I'm going to perpetuate oppression and envy. I am to live for the community. But Solomon also warns us that this doesn't mean when we live for the community, it doesn't mean that the community has a right to our stuff. That's envy. And so there are these two extremes of of radical individualism or, or community that is communal, like we think of in terms of socialism and communism, that these extremes are not going to lead to the good life. They are not going to lead to a blessed life. These are going to result in further fragmentation. And look, right now our society is bearing the marks of this in the tribalism that is running rampant. We are to live for we, not for me. We're not to use, we're not to use people. Well, now what Solomon says is not only are we not to use people, we are not to use God. As Solomon continues to observe life and to look around. As I said in the opening sermon, he is more than likely, he has assembled people uh, uh, there at the palace where he as the king has an assembly of people that he is preaching to, that that he is trying to help them to learn and to to live in a better way that is more consistent with what God has revealed in his scriptures and what God has revealed in, in the exodus of what it means to be God's people who have been called out in order to be consecrated to the Lord. And it's almost as if he's, as he's talking and, and he looks, he can see the temple, and he thinks, well, let's now talk about the temple. Because one of the greatest temptations that we have as those created in the image of God but have restless hearts that have been twisted by sin is to think that God owes us the good life. Especially if we are willing to serve Him. Maybe purpose can be found in going to church. This was a problem for Israel throughout its history, a problem that continued even into the time of Jesus. In the New Testament where people were following God because of what they thought God would give them if they followed. And quite often they, they would live in obedience if they felt like they were getting a payoff from it. But when it became hard, when it became difficult, when it required them to trust him, even when they were scared or afraid... They would throw all their gold into a fire and have God jump out. People who were rescued by God, who had God's presence in their midst, who saw them before them and behind them, who watched Him separate apart the Red Sea, who took them safely through who revealed himself in his glory cloud there at Mount Sinai as they saw the powerful presence of the Lord in their midst. Time after time after time, their lives were marked by complaint. Their lives were marked by fear. We just, we want to go back to Egypt. Yes, it was horrible there, but at least we were safe. At least we knew what to expect. We knew where our next meal was coming from. Yes, it was coming from the same hand that was whipping us, but we knew where the next meal was coming from. There is an impulse within all of us since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin to use God and to serve him if we are receiving some kind of benefit from doing so. Now, this is not just in the history of Israel. We can see it right now, right? We we have things like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to follow God, because God says that if I do these things, and if I give to him, he's going to give back to me tenfold. That if I go to church and I participate and do what I'm told, that I can have a blessed life or I can have that home that I want, that I can have that car that I want, that I can have that job that I want, right? And so what do I do? I go to church, not to listen, I go to church to name and claim what I want from God. Name it and claim it. This, is what Solomon is talking about here in chapter five. That there is an approach to relating to God, where we see Him as, as a cosmic bellhop, where we see Him as someone who is there to fulfill our needs and our wants. We, we see Him as there to serve us. And what we have to do is exercise a faith that will claim His blessings. When the faith that He calls us to exercise is to follow Him. Regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, meaning and purpose are not found in just being religious. And the value of our relationship with God is not determined by the return of investment that we receive. And so what Solomon is putting before us here in chapter five is this. It is vanity to use people. It is also vanity to use God. And so how do we avoid this? By cultivating reverent attitudes towards God that will help us to become quick to listen, slow to speak, and sure to act in our devotion to God. There are four truths that Solomon puts forward here about our worship if we are to engage in worship in a way that honors God instead of uses God. And the first truth that he gives us is that our worship is to be receptive. That when we go to the house of the Lord, we are to guard ourselves. This doesn't mean watch out for the robbers along the way. It means watch out for your own heart as you go before the Lord. Go with the purpose of listening instead of telling him how things ought to be. Anybody else besides me do this? Morning time, I've got my coffee, doing some devotion. All right, Lord, let me tell you how today ought to go. Our worship is to be receptive. We need to listen and focus on receiving from God, not to show off before. You see, even at the time of of Solomon and going into the New New Testament, there was a problem in the worship of God's people where that problem often worked itself out in, in what we might call a rote worship, where they would go to temple, they would offer sacrifice, but they were going through the motions. Their heart was not in it. There was a formalism that was often revealed, especially in those who considered themselves to be the most spiritual, where when they would go to temple, when they would go to worship, when they'd go to sacrifice, they would make a big display of what they were doing. They would make a big display of of their offering. And look, there was the temple worship at the time. If you were like you and I, we would have been the people who were bringing the pigeons, right? But the wealthy people, they would be bringing a ram or they would be bringing a bull. And there was this big show, this big display. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, where he quotes from Isaiah 29. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wondrous things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. God is being sarcastic here. The great thing that He's going to do is bring the Babylonians to come in and take them away into captivity. You're going to worship me through rote? You're going to worship me where you make a bigger deal about you than you're making about me? Well, then here's what we'll do I'm going to get your attention and those covenant curses that I promised to you back in Deuteronomy, I'm now gonna be faithful to do what I promised I would do if this is how you were going to relate to me. Now, some, there's a lot of different applications when, when you look at uh, the different commentators. Ecclesiastes is like this in every passage. I know I've said it, I think, every sermon. If you you look at five commentaries, there will be 12 different opinions. And there are some that I think mistakenly apply this portion of of, of verse 1 and verse 2. And what they say is that what Solomon is telling us is that we have to watch out for going to church and being distracted. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Unless the distraction is self-imposed because of our dreams, Solomon says. With many dreams, there is a lot of business. What I don't think Solomon is talking about here is that you're guilty of not listening if you go to church and if you struggle to follow what is being taught. That is not what he is addressing. He is not saying, well, you're not listening, and that's why you're not understanding. There are times when we legitimately are listening and trying and not connecting. And so he is not talking about that here. What he's talking about is the person who has a lot of dreams, the person who is preoccupied with how they wish life was and how they want life to be. And so what happens is when they go to offer sacrifice or when they go to church, what they are doing is they are bringing their dreams with them in order to inform God so that he can act rather than to be informed by God so that they can act. Our worship is to be receptive. We are to be quick to listen to God when we come to church. But not only are we to be quick to listen, we are to be slow to speak. When we go to church, we're not going to church in order to inform God what we want or to inform God what we think we need that he's not fulfilling for us. And look, that is not being described here as someone who is purposefully doing this. Notice what he said, that it's wicked when you do this, but it's wicked without you knowing it. This is not purposeful rejection or rebellion. This is someone who is so caught up with what they want and the dreams that they have of what they wish life would be that that's what comes and, or that's what they bring with them to worship and that's what's going through their heads and their hearts so that they start to see God as someone who is there to meet their felt needs rather than to come and to listen to God in order to learn from him what their real needs are and the provisions that he lavishes on us when we look to him by faith. We are not to be rash with our mouth or hasty with our heart in worship. We're not here to tell God how things should be. We're not here to tell God what we need. We're not here to tell God what we want. We're here in order to receive from God what he has for us. God does not exist to fulfill our dreams and our desires and best case scenarios and preferences. And when your life becomes filled with those things, you will bring a chatty heart to the Lord in worship. The dreams here, by the way, it's not exactly clear what he's referring to, but what many believe on the basis of just the definition of the word is is that what is going on with dreams is that if things are, are not what you wish they would be, that can create fear that can create trepidation right we're going to talk about that lord willing in the anxiety class today when things are not going the way that we wish they were and that is scaring us we get anxious and when we get anxious what do we what are we what are we tempted to think well the lord doesn't care why would he let me feel this way And rather than go to him to be renewed in who he is and to be renewed that we are those who are in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we go to him and we tell him, Lord, you're not doing what I need. Chatty hearts and chatty minds that are too boisterous to listen, he tells us, do not come to worship this way. The people of God have often struggled to live according to what God is revealing. Even in Deuteronomy 30, as the the people of God have had the covenant renewed and the second generation that have come out of Exodus are about to go into the promised land, Moses, or God through Moses, anticipates one of their fears. He anticipates one of their excuses. And he says, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. Oftentimes, when we find the will of God to be challenging, to to be difficult, to be different than what we want, to be different than what we prefer, we can convince ourselves that, well, what he wants from me, it's just too hard. It's too difficult. I I I don't want that. And he anticipates this from us. It's not. It's right here. But as Jesus has told us, every time a mouth is open, a heart is on display. We so often want to live according to our own ideas and what is comfortable to us instead of what God has said. And so we try to get him to arrange things according to our preferences. But what does God tell us? Um, By the way, when you come, remember that you're on earth and I'm in heaven. We don't know what God knows. We don't see what God sees. And we don't have the power to determine what he has determined. But the reality is, at least for me, is I like to think that I do. One of my favorite church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, has said, knowing how widely the the divine nature differs from our own, let us quietly remain within our proper limits. Let our words be few. Let our words be sincere from the heart. Let our words be in response to God's words instead of trying to put words in God's mouth. You see, the fool uses many words with God, but God reminds us that we are to know our place. In the sacrifice of the fool, the fool forgets that he is not the master and that God is not his servant. So we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and we are to be sure to act. Now, does this sound familiar to anybody, this threefold description? Is James 1 coming to mind? Or in James 19, he he reminds us that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then later down in one twenty two, he tells us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers. I I think he is getting what he is saying there right here from, from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5, because our worship Not only is it to be receptive, not only is our worship to be restrained, our worship is to be responsible. We are to fulfill what we say to the Lord. We are to use few words with the Lord, but the words that we do use, we are obligated to keep them. And so we are supposed to be careful about making promises to God or making promises before God. We are not to be quick to do this. We are not to be mindless in doing this. We are to count the costs. We we are not to become confused in thinking that God will simply be pleased with the intentions that I have if I talk a big game. No, because what God is owed is not only our words, but our actions. Once we say to the Lord, we're going to do something, he tells us, then keep it. It is better not to promise than to promise and not fulfill. And for us today, vows and and oaths are things that are not a part of our common everyday existence. They're not even a part of our common every week worship here at the church. And yet... There are many places in which we have taken vows and do take vows to the Lord and before the Lord. In marriage, you are making promises to do something and you're asking the Lord and you're asking those who are there to witness the marriage, you're asking both parties to hold you accountable. That's why we have witnesses at the wedding. At baptism. And I don't care if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, or what. You make promises. You either make promises that you are going to follow God, or you make promises that you're going to raise your children to follow him. But you make promises. I know I joked earlier about you've made promises to the children of this congregation and that hoping in VBS is an opportunity for you to fulfill that. I was joking. But it's also true. Membership. When you become a member of a church, you make promises. And by the way, when we take the Lord's Supper and the, the, the table is fenced, all the things that are said in the fencing are just a repetition of the vows that you've made in membership. That you're coming to the table as one who knows that you are a sinner and without the mercy of God, you are lost. That the mercy of God is to be found in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for, for you uh, in salvation through the cross and through his resurrection, that you are receiving this meal in order to be nourished so that you can keep living as, as one uh, who is following Christ and has a life that looks like you're following Christ, where you are renewing your commitment to, to share your time and your treasures and your talents with God through this community, where you are engaged In the very act of receiving communion, you are engaged in receiving the discipline of this church. Not discipline in terms of you've gotten in trouble and you need to be confronted, but discipline that is formative. Discipline that is discipleship, where you are actively being formed and shaped to follow Jesus Christ by partaking of the Lord's Supper in this way. We take vows. We have taken vows. If you're like me, you may also have engaged in the past in bargaining with God. Lord, if you will just get me out of this. Back in the time of Israel when when Solomon was writing, this was a big part of worship. And part of that big show was, was often, often consisted in someone coming to the temple and, and, and making a big display of, of what they were going to do for the Lord and what they were going to, a sacrifice they were going to offer to Him because of, what they had, uh, because of what they had received from Him or what they were trying to do for Him, and they would make this big deal. Often this came in the form of a sacrifice or it came in the, in the form of pledging money and what would happen is temple representatives would show up to your house. Now, we, we have it here that you said you were going to fill in the blank. So we're here to, to collect that money you promised. And what does Solomon say? Oh, well, that was a mistake. Solomon tells us not to be dishonest or ev- evasive when someone approaches you about not having kept your promises. And so often that is what I do. Rationalize, make excuses. Think that we can somehow manipulate the situation so that we don't have to to fulfill what we said, because we said it rashly. Beloved, God knows what you said. And in shocking fashion, he tells us that to make a promise and then not keep it is described as God not taking pleasure in a fool. Where God can be angry at your voice and destroy the efforts that you are making. Our word means something. And God takes us at that word and then He holds us to it, even when we don't want to hold ourselves, and especially when we don't want someone else to hold us to what we have promised. We are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and sure to act. And so lastly, our worship is to be reverent. It is an attitude of the heart of being a listener. It is an attitude of the heart to be careful in what you promise to the Lord. It is an attitude of the heart to take your own words seriously and to do what you have promised. Psalm 15.4 tells us that the righteous person is the one who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Literally, it says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Solomon is promoting to us an attitude and practice of truth, sincerity, and reverence, remembering our place before the Lord, remembering who the Lord is to us, so that reverent devotion cultivates the transcendence, the uniqueness, and the authority of God in our lives. Cultivating trans, cultivating reverence means that we remember that when we come to church, even though we come in the boldness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we come remembering that we are drawing near to a consuming fire. The church is not a coffee shop. We have not come here to have a conversation with God as his equals and we have not come here to inform God of what we need in order for him to better serve us. God is the consuming fire, is a consuming fire and when we come to church, we come into that presence. To the one who is worthy of our listening and obeying, the one who is worthy of our devotion even when it is hard, inconvenient, and different than what we think we need, worthy of keeping our promises even when it hurts. Because the God to whom we draw near is the one who himself has been faithful to his promises, fulfilling them even when he swore to his own hurt and did not change. Beloved, the reason we can come into the presence of God at all is because of the mediation of Jesus Christ, who made a promise with his father that he would come and he would accomplish everything that the father had for him to do, including the suffering of taking on flesh, the suffering of of living among fallen people who hated him, the suffering of living among disciples who, though they they appreciated him, did not trust him and, and did not give themselves to him wholeheartedly the one who would know the suffering of allowing himself to be captured by wicked men, to be put on trial, and to be accused of being guilty when he was innocent. The one who would know the suffering of the turning away of his father's face as our sin was placed upon him on the cross. Jesus Christ swore an oath and kept it even to his own harm. Beloved, that's the Christ who dwells within us. And the power that we find from God to live with him and to be devoted to him in this way is not a power that he expects you to drum up within yourself. It is a power that he freely bestows on you. If you will but let go of your own self-righteousness, Let go of your own sense of knowing what is right and what is better and what is best. And if you will, even when you're scared, even when you don't understand, even when it feels like you're in the valley of the shadow of death, if you will entrust yourself that the consuming fire of an eternal God is present with you in that moment and he is using that moment for what he knows is best for you then though you may be scared and though you may be tempted to run away, if you will just entrust yourself to him and just in that moment go to him and listen to him and be slow to speak to him and then be sure to act in following him, then your life will be the reverent devotion that he is worthy of not because you're perfect but because you are entrusting yourself to his provisions for your guilt, for your grace and for your gratitude we are not to manipulate and use God we are to offer ourselves to him and let him do with us what he will. Because the reality is, in Jesus Christ, though he may be shaking up our lives at time in order to help get the bad stuff out, the reality is we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we are called to be grateful, and not to refuse listening to him who is speaking and to offer him acceptable worship with reverence and awe, because he is indeed a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I confess my own personal preferences and desires for what I wish my Christian life looked like, what my home life looked like, what my ministry looked like, And I would imagine I'm not the only one in this room that struggles with those same seemingly unfulfilled desires. And yet you have told us that in Christ you have blessed us with all the blessings of the spiritual places and that there is nothing that we lack, there is nothing that we do not have, but that our faith is to grasp hold of what is already there And learn to live as those who possess it, especially when we have convinced ourselves that we don't. And so bless us, Lord, with a view of you that cultivates this reverence of listening, this reverence of not trying to counsel you, this reverence of doing what we promise the strength that you provide. And may we always remember, Lord, that though you are a consuming fire and worthy of our fear, our Savior Jesus Christ ever stands to mediate that presence to us so that rather than fear, we may be joyful, that we may be happy, that we may give ourselves freely, that we may indeed glorify you and enjoy you forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.